At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 57, The Cold War at Sea, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation uh, through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Our last two episodes, we looked at developments in land warfare and air power during the early years of the Cold War. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at how navies developed during the same period. From a high level, we will be examining the navies, ships, and events, and technology of the period. Navies obviously predated the Cold War and have existed for thousands of years. 75% of the world's surface is covered in water, and 40% of the human population lives within 100 kilometers of the sea. Beginning in ancient times, maritime trade became an important aspect of regional and even local economies. Like air forces, though, navies are expensive to build and maintain. They require shipyards, industry, and engineers to design, build, and sustain a fleet. Historically, navies are important because with a navy, you can project power to distant parts of the world defend your trade lanes, and attack the trade lanes of your enemy. In the subsequent global conflicts, which began in the 18th century with the War of Austrian Succession, 1740 to 1748, command of the seas often ensured the victory of one alliance or nation over another. Napoleon's conquest of Europe ultimately failed in part because he could not invade Britain for lack of a better navy. In World War I, Germany was blockaded and starved to her knees, In World War II, again, Germany's lack of a fleet to defeat the British Navy contributed to the failure of the Third Reich. World War II radically changed navies. Before World War II, there were six major navies, Great Britain, the United States, Japan, France, Italy, and Germany. By the end of World War II, there were only three, the United States, Great Britain, and France. In 1939, navies were considered the most strategic branch of the military. The battleship was the most technologically advanced weapons platform in the world. Indeed, nations spent large sums of money on them, and a nation's strength was measured by how many battleships they had. By October 1945, many argued that navies were redundant, if not outright obsolete, with the advent of the airplane and atomic bomb. Battleships, once the pride of the nation, were now considered relics of a bygone era. Naval planners in the 1930s had expected in the next war, as in previous wars, fleets of big gun battleships to locate each other and engage in battle. A combination of seamanship, armor thickness, gun caliber, speed, and luck would decide these engagements as at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 or the Battle of Jutland in 1916. 
Destroyers would screen the battleship line and attack with torpedoes. Cruisers would act as scouts and defend the battleships against enemy destroyers. Carriers would travel with the cruisers and use their aircraft to scout for enemy battleships. The submarine, despite its success in the First World War and its potential in future wars, was given little attention in most navies. At the end of the day, battleships were seen as a deciding element of future naval warfare in the 1930s. However, World War II ended up being far different than most imagined. Air power and the submarine fundamentally changed the nature of warfare at sea. The British first demonstrated the capabilities of air power when on November the 12th, 1940, using old World War I-era swordfish biplanes flown from the carrier Illustrious, they attacked the Italian fleet at Toronto, sinking one battleship and heavily damaging two others, while also sinking and damaging five other ships, while only losing two planes. Indeed, the operation inspired Admiral Yamato's plan to attack Pearl Harbor the following year when six Japanese carriers launched a surprise attack on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, sinking four American battleships while heavily damaging a further four. The subsequent naval battles fought between Japan and America were not battleship duels but carrier engagements fought out of gunnery range at the Battle of the Coral Sea and Midway. Even battleships that were underway and fully armed with and manned with anti-aircraft guns such as the Prince of Wales in December 1941 and the biggest battleship ever, the Yamato, in 1945 were sank by airplanes. In all, aircraft sank some 25 battleships in World War II. Submarines also sank five battleships. In contrast, only six battleships were sunk during World War II as a result of surface combat and enemy gunfire. Clearly, the vast majority were lost to enemy aircraft. During World War II, U.S. Navy aircraft destroyed 174 enemy ships. Likewise, U.S. submarines sank 30% of the Japanese Navy, including eight aircraft carriers. Submarines took on an even more strategic role than battleships during World War II. Germany came close to cutting Great Britain off from supplies and starving the island into submission. If the United States and Great Britain had not placed sustained efforts into anti-submarine warfare, Germany might have forced England to capitulate, or at the very least, push Britain into starvation. Whereas in the Pacific, American submarines sank 5.5 million tons of the Japanese merchant marine, starving Japan of food and resources, crippling their economy, and leading to the deaths of thousands of Japanese as a result of starvation and malnutrition. In the end, British and Japanese battleships and cruisers were helpless in addressing the submarine threat. Destroyers and aircraft proved to be the best weapons to battle submarines. The United States and Britain poured vast amounts of resources into planes and destroyers to battle this menace with new technologies like ASDAC and radar. Whereas Japan continued to invest large sums into battleships like the Yamato. Moreover, Japan didn't utilize its submarine force in an offensive manner like Germany and the United States, but instead used them primarily as an underwater transport force. Towards the end of World War II, technological progress continued to revolutionize concepts around what the future of naval warfare would look like, namely the jet aircraft, cruise missile, the helicopter, and atomic bomb. The jet aircraft immediately made carrier aircraft obsolete. Jet aircraft were heavier than piston-driven aircraft and required more maintenance. Therefore, carrier design and flat-top operations would need to be totally redesigned for carriers to operate jets. Cruise missiles represented both a challenge and an opportunity for navies in the future. The German V-1 buzz bomb, which had been captured by the Allies, was the first operational cruise missile. 
If the missile could be deployed on ships and submarines, it could become an offensive strike capability for surface ships and submarines to attack enemy targets far inland further than guns. On the other hand, surface-to-surface missiles such as the German Henschel HS-293, a radio-guided missile, presented a new danger to surface ships. The, the American Navy had a horrifying experience with the Japanese kamikazes. While not a cruise missile, the tactic of using suicidal attacks with planes basically mimicked the rudimentary principles of a cruise missile attack. Despite fighters and AAA fire, enemy kamikazes broke through American defenses, crashing their planes into American ships, with some 34 sunk and hundreds of others damaged, killing over 4,900 sailors. The helicopter, which started to make an appearance at the end of World War II, also represented new opportunities for navies. With its vertical takeoff and landing capabilities, it used less deck space versus traditional aircraft. It could be easily accommodated by existing carriers and could be used to save ditched pilots or transport goods to ships without having to land. Moreover, it represented a new amphibious capability to bring small teams ashore without the need for classic landing craft, flying over coastal defenses. Overall, helicopters gave commanders more options and capabilities. Finally, the atomic bomb threw into question the value of even having a Navy. The Air Force and its proponents argued long-range bombers could now project American power abroad, negating the need for a Navy at half the price. Moreover, they contended a fleet at harbor or even out at sea was defenseless against an atomic attack. In the flash of a moment, one atomic bomb could obliterate an entire fleet worth billions of dollars. Indeed, the period 1945 to 1950 was a crucial period for the world's navies, as they had to once again prove their worth. The era had three major navies, the American, British, and French. Other navies existed but were far smaller, and the technological changes of World War II made it harder for them to compete. The Soviet Navy, which we will be examining in detail, was a minor player during the period, but as the Cold War progressed, came to be the second largest navy in the world. The advent of the jet aircraft, missiles, helicopters, and the atomic bomb radically changed the role of surface combatants. Before World War II, classifications like destroyer, cruiser, and frigate all made sense, but in the Cold War, these titles started to mean a lot less. Ships up to the present continue to use these traditional designations, but nations since the Cold War interpret these terms differently, sometimes applied in a contradictory manner between and within navies. Many modern destroyers are larger than World War II destroyers, whereas many World War II cruisers were bigger than contemporary cruisers. As a result of this technological change, surface combatants primarily became either escort ships or anti-submarine warfare platforms. Surface escorts either escorted convoy ships or carriers protecting them from air attack, whereas anti-submarine warfare ships hunted for enemy submarines, which threatened either the carrier or convoy. Naturally, many ships could perform both roles. During the early Cold War, it's important to understand that Western Europe and America depended on the sea, whereas the Soviet Union did not. Western Europe was still dependent on trade with their colonies and the United States. America and their colonies provided natural resources, the most critical of which was oil, and Western Europe was heavily dependent on foodstuffs after the war. The Soviet Empire, in contrast, a vast land empire contained within its borders most of its goods and more or less was self-sufficient, hence it had no immediate need for a navy. During World War II, the Axis powers suffered an inherent disadvantage because Germany and Italy were separated from Japan by thousands of miles of Allied-dominated ocean. Communication between Germany and Japan, the principal Axis powers, was confined to a few submarines and a diminishing number of merchant ships. 
For the Soviet Union in the early Cold War, however, there was no overseas allies of any significance. Therefore, there was no inherent need for the Soviet Empire to move troops, equipment, supplies, or oil by sea, and as a result, the fleets of the two rival blocs were built around different mission requirements and developed in different ways. Despite these advantages, the Soviets also had a series of disadvantages when it came to their fleet, the biggest of which was geographic. The Russians had no warm water ports, minus the Black Sea, meaning naval operations had to halt two or three months out of the year. Second, all Russian fleets had to operate through geographical choke points. In the North Seas, the Soviets had to sail around Norway and were susceptible to attack by planes based there. Once past Norway, they still passed either the Iceland-Greenland gap or the UK-Iceland gap to reach the North Atlantic, all the while vulnerable to air attack. In the Baltic, Soviet forces had to sail through the Danish Strait and the North Sea to reach the Atlantic which would be mined and closed by enemy forces in the event of a war. To access the Mediterranean, the Soviets had to traverse the Dardanelles and Bostris from the Black Sea. In the Pacific, Soviet forces leaving Vladivostok could be monitored and or attacked by American forces based in Japan only about 400 miles away and had to pass South Korea and Japan to access the Pacific. Geographically as well, the four major Soviet fleets Northern, Baltic, Black Seas, and Pacific were isolated from one another. Naval resources had to be split between the four fleets. It was possible to transfer ships between the fleets through long voyages, but in a wartime situation, these transfers would be unlikely. Moreover, unlike the Americans, British, or French fleets, her navy had lacked friendly harbors overseas which could host Soviet fleets in the early Cold War. Therefore, the early Cold War came to focus on the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean. In the event of a war between NATO and the Soviet Union, it would be vital for the Allies to keep the trade lanes of the North Atlantic open to transport troops and supplies to Europe. The Soviets, in contrast, mindful of both the First and Second World Wars, saw that, like the Germans, their best option would be for a submarine campaign to isolate and starve Western Europe from supplies and reinforcements shipped from the United States in the event of a war with the capitalist powers. The Soviets announced that they would build a 1,200-strong submarine force, which only exacerbated NATO fears. The Germans only had 24 operational submarines at the beginning of World War II and only built 1,156 over the course of the entire war. Hence, a Soviet force of 1,200 submarines represented a serious challenge to NATO navies and planners. The growing number of Soviet submarines were thus countered by a variety of means. There were a large number of Second World War destroyers and frigates still available which were capable of anti-submarine warfare, equipped with sensors and anti-submarine weapons like death charges and hedgehogs. The U.S. also developed a new hunter-killer submarine which was equipped with highly sensitive sonars and whose intended mission was to stalk and kill Soviet submarines. Unfortunately, this program was unsuccessful and attention returned to more traditional means. The U.S. Navy also invested considerable funds into the Sound Surveillance System, or SOSUS, which laid a series of microphones on the seabed across the choke points of the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. Linked by sea cables to control centers ashore, the system worked like an underwater radar grid, which gave advance warning of Soviet submarine deployments. The Mediterranean also became a key arena in the early Cold War, given the strength of the Italian and French Communist parties. In addition to the communist insurgency in Greece and the pressure Stalin was putting on Turkey to gain control of the Dardanelles, 
the U.S. Navy and its Sixth Fleet became a permanent fixture of the Mediterranean. At the end of World War II, the United States Navy was by far the world's greatest navy, consisting of 1,308 ships. By comparison today, the U.S. Navy has roughly 430 ships. It had 40 modern fleet carriers, 79 smaller carriers, 24 battleships, 36 heavy cruisers, 57 light cruisers, 450 destroyers, 359 destroyer escorts, and 263 submarines, as well as a massive amount of support and amphibious assault shipping. Moreover, most of the Navy's ships were brand new, with an average age of just three years old. Despite the strength and success of the U.S. Navy coming out of World War II, in many ways it was the most in danger versus either the British, French, or even Soviet Navy. Its enemy wasn't another Navy or even the Soviet Union, but the bureaucracy and politics of Washington that threatened its very survival. A new service had come of age, the Air Force, and it was gunning to replace the Navy. It had powerful allies on Capitol Hill and had captured the imagination of the American people. Moreover, with the advent of jet technology and the cruise missile just over the horizon, many of her ships were effectively obsolete. The Navy recommended to Congress a post-war Navy of 15 fleet carriers, 11 battleships, 49 cruisers, and 179 destroyers. This was quickly denied, though, by the Truman administration, who were quite confident in the deterrence of the atomic bomb and preventing future wars. Many pointed to the fact that the Navy had no defense against the atomic bomb and called for its eventual scrapping. In 1946, the Navy, in cooperation with the Army Air Corps, tested the atomic bomb and a fleet of obsolete surplus and captured warships to test the effects of an atomic bomb on a fleet underway at Bikini Atoll, Operation Crossroads. In the test, two atomic bombs were tested on the fleet, Abel and Baker. One was detonated in an air blast above the target, as was the case at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the other underwater simulating a nuclear torpedo. Fuel and ammunition were placed aboard the ships, and animals such as goats, pigs, and rats were used to represent humans. The test was very controversial, especially with animal rights groups. The government argued that death by the atomic blast was instant and death by radiation sickness was painless for the animals. Yet we know this was a lie given the horrific accounts of Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. The first test, Abel, was accidentally dropped off-target by the Air Force by some 760 yards, why they missed the target remains a subject of debate. Nonetheless, some five ships were sunk, but no battleships. Fourteen other ships were judged to have serious damage. Indeed, the captured battleship Nagato was in good shape, although she did sink three weeks later after the Baker test. Baker sunk ten ships, with the shockwave causing massive damage to the hulls of the other ships. The German heavy cruiser Prince Eugene survived both blasts, but was too radioactive for crews to repair her leaks, and she sank 10 days later. In all, a number of ships survived the test, but radiation sickness would have killed their surviving crews within a few days, as most of the animals inside the ships were protected from the blast, but died days later as a result of radiation sickness. As a result of these tests, the Navy argued that ships could survive an atomic attack, and with this test information, they could build more survivable ships that could protect their crews from the effects of radiation. Despite the proven survivability of ships in an atomic attack, the Navy was drastically scaled back. 2,269 ships were placed into storage. Dozens more were scrapped. Others were sold to foreign buyers, and others used in further nuclear tests. By 1950, the active Navy consisted of 15 carriers of all types, 
one battleship, 23 cruisers, and 82 destroyers. Manning the fleet also proved difficult because many civilian jobs enticed many sailors away from the fleet. With the creation of the Department of Defense in 1947, the Air Force made a serious push to dissolve the Navy or, at the very least, requisition all its aircraft. For a time, Secretary of Defense Forrestal attempted to keep the peace between the two services, but with his resignation and death, the hostility between the two services broke out into the open. The Secretary of the Navy resigned and accused the new Secretary of Defense, Johnson, of working to abolish the Marine Corps and transfer all naval and marine aviation units to the Air Force. The Navy and Air Force fought a bitter battle on Capitol Hill over funding. The Navy wanted to build a supercarrier, USS America, large enough for twin-engine bombers capable of carrying an atomic bomb, a clear threat to the Air Force's monopoly over the atomic bomb. The Air Force wanted the funds for the new B-36, and in the ensuing fight, the Navy accused the Air Force leadership of taking bribes from aircraft manufacturers which resulted in congressional hearings. Air Force leadership was cleared of a bribery, but the Navy used the hearings as a national platform to push back against the Air Force vision of a bomber and atomic bomb as the ultimate deterrent. In what became known as the Revolt of the Admirals, ultimately they lost the battle publicly as two admirals were forced into early retirement and one resigned. Air Force General Vandenberg, who you might remember from our episode on the CIA as he was the second CIA director, made a much more reasoned, logical argument in congressional hearings about the value of the B-36 versus the superior carrier and, in the end, won the debate. Nevertheless, the subsequent events and the Korean War would prove many of the Navy's criticisms correct. Thus, the Navy's plan in the aftermath of World War II was survival via the embrace of new technology and modernization of its existing platforms to compete in the modern era. This included the acquisition of the atomic bomb, breaking the Air Force's monopoly on the weapon, and research around nuclear propulsion. The advent of nuclear energy presented the Navy the possibility of limitless power supply, which would revolutionize the propulsion of ships and submarines. Moreover, the Navy was very interested in the viability of launching missiles from sea, and in 1947, the USS Midway launched a captured German V-2 rocket from her deck. The Navy also experimented with launching a V-1 buzz bomb from the submarine Cusk the same year. The Navy also made a series of experimental flights with the twin-engine helicopter, the McDonald XHJD-1, in March 1946 as a prototype for use in utility work and search and rescue. By April 1948, the first Navy helicopter squadron was established at Lakehurst, New Jersey. Beyond technology acquisition, the U.S. Navy also was able to show value through gunboat diplomacy or showing the flag to send a political message making visible shows of support for American allies and shows of American strength to its enemies. An American carrier group off your coast represented 90,000 tons of clear American diplomacy, which included a detachment of Marines. A B-36 flying at 50,000 feet couldn't deliver the same type of political message. Truman sent the battleship Missouri and later the aircraft carrier Franklin Roosevelt to Turkey in 1946 to show support against Soviet aggression. The FDR, with its 123 planes, had a greater striking power than any other air force in the region at the time. The FDR also traveled to Athens to show American solidarity there with the Greek government against communist insurgents. The Marshall Plan was also carried out through a massive shipping effort by the U.S. Merchant Marine. The heart of the U.S. fleet were its carriers. In the event of a war 1945 to 1950, 
American carriers would engage the Soviet surface fleet, submarines, and bases supporting the Soviet Northern Baltic and Black Seas fleets. Even with the success of the carrier in World War II, though, many in the Truman administration questioned its future value. The Air Force and its bombers were the only force capable of delivering the atomic bomb for much of the period. The Navy had no such weapon system, nor could any of its current aircraft deliver such a weapon. Many in Congress and the White House questioned the future value of the aircraft carrier. Carriers were expensive ships to operate, especially when their air wing, purpose-built replenishment ships, and escorts were added in. The Navy argued, though, that carriers, unlike Air Force bases, had the ability to move almost anywhere in the world in international waters. Unlike the Air Force, the Navy wasn't limited by overflight rights and the need for foreign bases, which requires long-term expensive foreign commitments, both in money and political influence. Contending that foreign Air Force bases were a greater long-term cost to the American taxpayer versus buying aircraft carriers. One of the immediate challenges for the Navy's carriers was switching from piston to jet aircraft. In 1947, the first jet aircraft, the McDonald FH-1 Phantom, was introduced. Despite this, though, piston engine aircraft like the F-4 Corsair and A-1 Sky Raider continued to serve into the 1950s. Indeed, the Sky Raider would see service into the 1970s and serve in Vietnam. Jet fighters were much heavier and faster aircraft, so the carriers themselves had to be modified to carry the new planes. The Navy copied the British idea of an angled flight deck and the mirror landing system with strengthened takeoff and arresting systems. Jet aircraft also consumed more fuel, so carriers' fuel-carrying capacity had to be increased. These alterations were made to the carriers on an on-as-needed basis, and the carrier fleet wasn't fully updated until the mid-1950s. The U.S. Navy reconstructed Essex and Midway-class carriers were the typical frontline carriers of the U.S. into the 1950s. The Navy, as mentioned earlier, had designed a new carrier, the USS America, a supercarrier, but the ship was canceled by the Truman administration and no new carriers would be introduced until the 1960s. The Navy also began a program to build their own carrier-based nuclear bomber. The first aircraft to perform this mission was the Lockheed Neptune, which was converted from an anti-submarine warfare platform. Each Neptune could carry one Mark VI atomic bomb. Nevertheless, the Neptune was highly inefficient for this role. The plane had no folding wings, so it had to be stored on deck. They had no arresting hooks and could not land on the carriers. Moreover, they had to be loaded onto the carrier by a crane. They required rocket assistance for takeoff and would have been launched on a one-way mission similar to the Doolittle raid in World War II. Seeing the obvious limitations of the Neptune platform, the Navy contracted a plane specifically built for the task, the AJ-1 Savage, a twin-engine piston bomber it entered service in 1950. Originally intended for the USS America, only a few could be accommodated aboard Essex and Midway-class carriers, though. The Air Force saw the plane as a direct threat to their monopoly over the atomic bomb, and it encouraged them to rally their friends on Capitol Hill to cancel the USS America and have the funds transferred to the Air Force. The Air Force also succeeded in having the strategic role of naval aviation restricted. With the Korean War, though, attitudes in the Air Force and Navy changed, and it was agreed that the Navy would concentrate its nuclear forces on land elements which would affect the naval war, like ports, coastal cities, and airfields whereas Air Force nuclear bombers would concentrate on industrial targets, military bases, and population centers. 
Atomic bombs during the period were large, and despite the Navy's best efforts, operating the AJ-1 Savage was a complicated and time-consuming affair. According to the rules for safety for nuclear weapons at the time, plutonium cores had to be stored in the United States and were then flown by transport aircraft to an airbase near the carriers. Only on receipt of warlike conditions were they transferred in parts in two aircraft to the carriers. On arrival, a team of some 40 specialists then assembled each bomb. Obviously, although better than the Neptune, this was still a very ineffective system for delivering nuclear weapons. The battleship after the war had no clear mission and was widely viewed as obsolete. By 1949, the U.S. only had one battleship, the USS Missouri, in service, albeit with a reduced crew and as a training ship. America's three other Iowa-class battleships were placed in storage. When Missouri embarrassingly ran aground in January 1950, many called for her decommissioning and an end to the battleship fleet. The fifth battleship in the Ohio class, the USS Kentucky, was incomplete at the end of the war and was briefly considered for modification into an anti-aircraft battleship or a missile battleship. Yet these schemes never panned out, and America's last battleship was scrapped in 1959. Cruisers fared little better than battleships, although their anti-aircraft defenses were updated and electronics improved. They continued to see extensive service throughout the conflict. They found themselves relegated to escort duty for the fleet carriers, shore bombardment, and as the new flag or command ships of the Navy's various fleets. Two new types of semi-modern cruisers also joined the fleet in the late 1940s, the Des Moines class and the Worcester class. The Des Moines class was unique in its size and in its automated rapid-fire 8-inch guns capable of an astounding 10 rounds per barrel per minute. The Des Moines were the last all-gun heavy cruisers commissioned by the U.S. Navy and the first air-conditioned ship. Of the three ships, two were eventually decommissioned in 1961, but the Newport News served until 1975. The Worcester class was also vastly different from traditional cruisers as the ship was armed with 12 rapid-fire, dual-purpose, 6-inch guns and twin turrets. The guns could shift quickly from anti-ship to anti-aircraft mode. Nonetheless, these guns proved not very reliable. Moreover, by the time that they were commissioned, they were obsolete as their guns were too slow to engage jet aircraft. Their fleet service was thus short, lasting only 11 years from 1947 to 1958. Most destroyers in the U.S. Navy were brand new as a result of World War II, mostly of the Fletcher, Gearing, and Sumner class. They were relatively large, about 2,000 tons, and well-armed with 5-inch dual-purpose guns, as well as anti-ship uh, and torpedoes and basic anti-submarine weapons. Most of these ships were placed in storage, though. Nonetheless, the destroyer came to be a critical ship in the Cold War. It played a vital role in anti-submarine warfare and the Black Gap, as it had in World War II. Additionally, there was a rush to design bigger and better anti-submarine warfare platforms, such as the Nor Norfolk-class destroyers. Destroyers like cruisers were also assigned escort duties, escorting carriers and convoys, and they also provided inshore bombardment. America's vast fleet of amphibious operations equipment was put into storage, and its mine warfare force was stripped to the bone until the Korean War. The U.S. and Britain had a wealth of knowledge in amphibious warfare from their countless landings in North Africa, Europe, and the Pacific. Yet in the late 1940s, there was little perceived requirements for amphibious landings, as it was thought at high levels in the Pentagon that atomic bombs had outdated such massive concentrations of ships. 
Despite this, though, the United States did retain the Marine Corps, although it did suffer from budget cuts like the rest of the Navy. The Marines had, over the course of its inception in 1775, become a small army owned by the American Navy. During most of the Cold War, it fielded three mobile divisions equipped with their own armor and artillery. It should be noted that during this time, a Marine division was larger than a standard army division. Each division had an associated Marine air wing, meaning each Marine division could operate as a small army independently. The Marines would see extensive service in the Cold War, especially in Korea and Vietnam. American submarines, like the British and Soviets, benefited immensely from capture of advanced German submarines, such as the Type 21 at the end of the war. However, the vast majority of American subs were recently built World War II vintage. These subs were streamlined and upgraded with more powerful batteries, fitted with sonars and snorkels. These upgraded submarines remained in service until the early 1970s, and many more were transferred to Allied nations. Many of these submarines were also converted for special roles, which included radar pickets, which were fitted with large radars to enable them to give mid-course guidance corrections to carrier-launched bombers, and later to the Regulus submarine-launched cruise missile. Some were converted to troop transports to deliver covert parties to hostile shores, and others were seaplane refuelers. The Korean War in the end really showed the value of the U.S. Navy and the aircraft carrier. When the North Koreans smashed across the 38th parallel and invaded South Korea, it wasn't the B-36 or B-50 that Truman turned to. The question was, where are the carriers? In a week's time, the American carrier Valley Forge and the British carrier Triumph were launching strikes against the North Koreans. Even diehard critics in the Air Force and Congress had to agree that despite the nuclear age, aircraft carriers and the fleet still retained some value in the rapidly unfolding Cold War. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you like this episode about military history, like this episode or episode about the air power or land warfare in the early Cold War, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. To make a donation, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. After making a donation, the best thing you could do to help us is spread the word. Share your favorite episodes on Facebook, tell a friend, or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial free episodes. Now back to the show. The second greatest Navy of the period was the British Royal Navy. The British had begun World War II as the largest navy in the world, and its navy had expanded rapidly as a result of the war, yet it fell behind the phenomenal growth of the U.S. Navy. Indeed, the British Navy had been the greatest navy in the world since their defeat of the French and Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Yet by the end of World War II, Great Britain was bankrupt, and the Royal Navy had suffered staggering losses in the war. In all, some 1,525 ships were lost during the war, and some 50,000 sailors had died in the six years of war. Budget-cutting decimated its forces further, bringing its number down to 900 ships and 866,000 sailors. By 1950, that number was reduced further to 112 active ships of all type and 140,000 active sailors. The British did, though, continue to make a modest contribution to NATO amphibious warfare capabilities. Nevertheless, the Royal Navy also had to face the fact that it was no longer the greatest navy in the world and had to play second fiddle to its American cousin. 
Despite being an American ally and supportive of NATO goals, Britain and their admiralty were displeased about their loss of command in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean to the Americans and had to be satisfied with the command of the English Channel. Despite the end of the war, 1945 to 1950 was a dramatic time for the British Empire and its fleet. The British Raj ceased to exist, Palestine in a chaotic mess was handed back to the United Nations, and in Malaya the British fought a communist insurgency. During the period, the weakened British fleet was spread thin around the globe in an attempt to help contain communism and maintain their far-flung empire. In May 1946, while on patrol in the Mediterranean, British cruisers HMS Orion and HMS Suburb steamed through Corfu Channel and were fired upon by communist Albanian shore batteries. In October, the British attempted to transit the channel again, but discovered that the channel had been mined by Albanians with the support of the Yugoslavs. As the British entered the channel, two destroyers were seriously damaged. Not willing to lose face, though, the British mounted a successful mine-sweeping operation to clear the channel. In Malaya, British carriers provided air support and a British frigate shore bombardment against communist insurgents there. In 1949, in China, another British frigate on patrol along the Yangtze River was attacked by communist forces. Communist artillery hit the ship multiple times, forcing her aground. A rescue effort was launched by the British destroyer HMS Consort, but she too was driven off by enemy fire. The following day, a British heavy cruiser, London, with her 8-inch guns, attempted to save the frigate, blasting her way up the river, firing over 500 rounds. But again, she too was hit and repulsed, suffering heavy damage. For the next several months, the frigate was held hostage by the communists until the frigate was able to free herself and make a clandestine dash down the river to safety. With this incident, the Chinese communists made it clear that Western ships were no longer welcome in their territorial waters. There was a desire within the British Navy to retain as many heavy warships as they could after the war, but given the cost and obsolescence of battleships, their days were numbered. Cruisers retained greater value in the new jet age and were cheaper to run than battleships. The British, after the war, retained their King George V battleships, and they did see active service in these years, but they were all placed into storage by 1951. The last British battleship, Vanguard, was not completed until 1946 and more or less operated as the Imperial Yacht during the period. Like the American Navy, the carrier became the heart of the British fleet. Indeed, the British made a great effort in retaining a carrier capability. Like the Americans, the British faced the same issues with the introduction of jet aircraft. Indeed, the British made the first jet landing on a carrier in December 1945. Throughout the late 40s, the British made a number of exceptionally new concepts to carrier design to address the challenge of jet technology, despite the steady decline of its own carrier force. The first of these was the angled deck. The jet-propelled aircraft coming into service were much more time-consuming in landing and taking off versus prop aircraft. An angled deck, which was offset to the port side, allowed for separated takeoff and landings of planes simultaneously, thus speeding up aircraft handling and increasing the available deck space, while adding to overall safety of flight operations. The British also developed the steam catapult, which was used the ship's excess steam power to launch the heavier jet aircraft into the air. Next came the mirror deck landing equipment, replacing the human Batman who used colored paddles in the day or luminous sticks at night to assist the planes in landing. 
This mirror system was very popular with the pilots because it was not only much safer, but put them back in charge of landings. All of these innovations found their way onto American carriers, greatly aiding the development of America's supercarriers over the course of the Cold War. Despite all of these innovations, though, the British development of carrier-based jet aircraft was slow, and by 1950, the Royal Navy was still dependent on propeller-driven aircraft. At the end of World War II, Great Britain had six fleet carriers and nine smaller light fleet carriers, with a further two fleet carriers and six light carriers under construction. Some of these light fleet carriers were sold to Commonwealth nations and foreign navies. Indeed, most of the world's carriers were British-built in the early Cold War. One recipients being Argentina 1, Australia 1, Brazil 1, Canada 1, France 1, India 1, and the Netherlands 1, although this carrier was eventually sold to Argentina as well. Despite Great Britain's investment in carriers, the main strength of the British Navy remained in its sizable service force, destroyers and frigates, of which 123 new ships were built between 1950 and 1990. By 1950, the British service fleet had 15 cruisers, 33 destroyers, 27 frigates, and 32 submarines. In 1945, the British had the third largest submarine fleet, and like the Americans, they upgraded their submarines with streamlined hulls, updated batteries, and new sensors, which enabled these boats to serve into the 1960s and 1970s. Like the Americans, the British were concerned about a future third battle of the Atlantic and a Soviet attempt to blockade Britain via submarines in any future war. The British, like the Americans, invested considerable resources into anti-submarine warfare, such as building the Daring-class destroyer and building a number of maritime patrol aircraft. As mentioned earlier, the British did retain an amphibious capability throughout the Cold War, and the Royal Marines numbered around seven to 8,000 during the era, with a Special Forces Commando Brigade and its Special Boat Squadron. The third largest navy of the period was the French Navy. The French Navy during the period was composed of pre-war French ships, surplus American and British ships, post-war constructed ships, and the reparation ships from Italy and Germany. The balance of the fleet, though, was made up of various smaller ships and escorts. Again, like the Americans and British, the aircraft carrier was the heart of the French fleet. The French operated two aircraft carriers, the Nemoud, a former American carrier, and the Aramanche, the ex-British Colossus. They used U.S.-made piston-driven aircraft on both carriers. The French operated these two carriers into the 1960s until they were replaced by two French domestically built carriers. Unlike the Americans or British, the French had two new battleships, the Richelieu and Jean Bart, completed in 1944 and 1949, respectively. Indeed, France invested enormous sums to finish the construction of the Jean Bart, which had begun before the war. The Jean Bart was the last battleship ever constructed. These heavily armed warships with eight 15-inch main guns, nine secondary 6-inch guns, and 90 smaller anti-aircraft guns were operated more out of pride than strategic naval value. The French had suffered greatly during World War II, and in the years that followed sought with these battleships to regain a measure of their lost stature in the international community following the humiliation of the French in World War II. Both battleships saw service in Southeast Asia and in the Suez Crisis. To complement these battleships, the French operated four ex-Italian light cruisers during the period. The French committed a large part of their navy to NATO and the North Atlantic, but also saw extensive service in Southeast Asia during the period. 
French carriers launched hundreds of airstrikes against the Viet Minh, and the battleship Richelieu participated in the bombardment of Haiphong. The Mediterranean was also of vital importance to France, which had colonial holdings in North Africa. U.S. and British domination of the command structure of NATO in the Mediterranean caused tensions and deep resentments with the French, though. Many other navies existed during the period. Most prominent of these were those of Western Europe, the British Commonwealth, and the navies of South America. Like Great Britain and France, Holland, Belgium, Italy, Sweden, and the British Commonwealth nations were in a difficult financial straits at the end of World War II. None could support large navies, so all tended to focus on local defense and a lower level of commitment for international military operations. All NATO members except Luxembourg, Denmark, and Iceland contributed naval forces to the alliance during this time. These navies were of different sizes with varying degrees of sophistication and were deployed according to their each nation's interests and fears. The Belgians operated ex-British and American destroyers and participated in defending the English Channel in the North Sea. The Dutch Navy was rebuilt after World War II with the help of the Americans and British, and Dutch forces participated in anti-submarine warfare operations in the North Atlantic and North Sea. The smaller Norwegian Navy also participated in anti-submarine warfare operations off its coast and in its fjords, a favorite hiding spot for submarines. Although Portugal was a long-established maritime power, the Portuguese Navy remained relatively small throughout the Cold War. This was in part due to colonial commitments in Africa and Asia, in addition to the weakness of the Portuguese economy. Throughout the period, the Navy maintained a small force of frigates and corvettes. Canada ended the Second World War with a sizable fleet, and despite its cuts, continued to maintain an aircraft carrier and two cruisers of British design in the early years of the Cold War. Greece and Turkey operated large numbers of ex-World War II U.S. destroyers and submarines in the eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea into the 1980s. Italy ended World War II with a good-sized domestically built fleet, but most of these ships had to be given away to the victorious Allies as reparations payments. During the Cold War, the Italian Navy built up a substantial force of fast, well-armed cruisers and destroyers. The U.S. also supplied Italy with surplus World War II submarines, and the Italians built a substantial number of corvettes and patrol boats for operating along the Italian coast. None of these navies operated battleships, minus Italy, which operated two as training vessels until they were scrapped in 1957. Some smaller nations did operate carriers, though, such as the Dutch, who did purchase a Colossus-class aircraft carrier from the British Navy in 1948. The Royal Navy also gave Australia a carrier in 1949. This light carrier, renamed Royal Australian Navy Melbourne, uh, was not fully modernized, though, until 1955. Indeed, in the first five years of the Cold War, 1945 to 1950, all the world's navies, with the exception of the Soviet Union, rapidly downsized. The Soviet Navy was not a major navy of the period, yet it represented a specific danger to NATO shipping lanes in the North Atlantic. Additionally, it's important to examine the origins of the Soviet Navy to understand how it eventually became the second greatest navy in the world by the 1980s. The Russian Imperial Navy, the forerunner of the Soviet Navy, was over 300 years old, and for much of the 18th and 19th century was the third or fourth largest navy in the world. In the 20th century, though, the Russians suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Japanese at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905. The Russian fleet was ill-led, consumed with poor morale, and bore a lack of training that was verging on criminal. Its ships were underprepared for the disciplined, well-led, and well-armed Japanese navy, as most of its ships were either sunk or captured. After this, it had been partially restored, 
but its performance in the First World War was mediocre, but it became famous for its role during the Russian Revolution of 1917. Various ships and their crews either sided with the Bolsheviks, revolutionaries, or sided with the several white forces. By 1921, the issue was settled with the Bolshevik victory. Unfortunately, though, many of the Navy's best officers were either purged, exiled, or sent to the Gulag. As to the inventory of warships at the time, there were few operational units and all were from a former era. Many of the warships had been damaged during the revolution and the, and the state of the Soviet Navy in the early 1920s was pathetic. Rebuilding the Navy and the merchant fleet was fraught with problems, including trained shipyard workers and factories. The no-work-no-eat communist policy motivated many shipyard workers to return to work and others to learn the skills to become employed in the shipyard. Consultants from Italy, Germany, and other countries were also hired to train workers and influence the design and construction of ships. By 1924, the Soviet Navy had been partially reconstituted and consisted of two old battleships, one cruiser, 18 destroyers, and nine submarines. All were obsolete and rebuilt. However, there were now enough ships to operate small units in the Black and the Baltic Sea. Over the next few years, a series of technologically crewed warships were built, in addition to a number of coastal submarines, two cruisers, and a small number of Italian-designed destroyers. By the late 1920s, two schools of thought had developed within the Soviet Navy. The first school of thought argued for the creation of a traditional blue water navy. The second school of thought was a defensive navy built around a smaller, smaller craft, submarine, and aircraft that would concentrate on defending Russia's coastlines and controlling the Black and the Baltic Seas. Stalin wanted an ocean-going navy that could project power abroad. He wanted the Soviet Navy to be the most powerful navy in the world and had plans drawn up to build two modern 35,000-ton battleships. Stalin did, though, adopt some of the measures proposed by the Defensive School of Thought, and 1,300 aircraft were built to defend the coastline of the Soviet Union. The Second World War, though, prevented any further investment in the Soviet Navy. On paper, the Soviet fleet was far larger than the German, with over 180 submarines and 220 warships. Nevertheless, this preponderance of warships was insufficient to triumph over the Germans. Over the next five years, German forces devastated much of the Soviet Navy, including the destruction of several shipyards. The two unfinished battleships were destroyed, along with half of all Soviet service warships. The three older Soviet battleships were heavily damaged, four of her eight cruisers were sank, and the destroyers and submarines fared little better. The performance of the Soviet Navy in World War II was lackluster, and it suffered its most losses from enemy mines and air attacks. Anti-aircraft guns aboard Soviet ships were virtually non-existent, and the Germans used sea mines extensively. Soviet sailors no doubt were brave, but the Soviet Navy made little contribution towards victory in the war. This wasn't entirely the Navy's fault. They were subordinated to the Army and had its ships and crews cannibalized for cannons and soldiers. Warships were used in defense of the Soviet cities, and their guns were employed as artillery against the advancing Germans. The overall Soviet consensus was the Navy was a second-rate service and adjunct to the Army. In response to pleas for assistance during the final years of the war, the United States and Great Britain supplied a number of ships to the Soviet Navy, including the older battleship HMS Royal Sovereign, which was renamed the Archangel. The Royal Navy also provided several older submarines and at least eight of the original four-piper World War I vintage destroyers lent by the United States. 
U.S. Navy loaned the older Omaha-class light cruiser Milwaukee, which was renamed Murmansk. The U.S. also supplied hundreds of other ships, including icebreakers, liberty ships, and smaller warships. Interestingly, the Soviet Union refused to return 600 ships of all types, and even by the mid-1950s, more than one-third of the Soviet merchant fleet consisted of Lend-Lease ships. During World War II, the Soviet Union claimed to have sunk some 1.5 million tons of enemy shipping and at least 37 destroyers and 50 submarines of the German Navy. These losses were never verified and are disputed. Overall, the Soviet Navy was not effective as a surface force and only excelled in supporting small amphibious operations. Its submarine campaign was haphazard, and at war's end, the Soviet Navy was in a state of disarray. Peace brought with it the same debate about the Soviet Navy that had begun in the 1920s. Many officers wanted to rebuild the fleet as a defensive force devoted to coastal defense. Stalin and others believed in building an ocean-going navy. One of the first objectives was to build a popular support for the new navy. To this end, maritime and nautical clubs were established in major cities. Shows and lectures and nautical events were sponsored by the government. On the other hand, the Navy's subordination to the Army was enhanced with the unification of the armed forces in 1945 under a single ministry dominated by the Army. However, in 1950, the single ministry was split into three, and the Navy was once again its own ministry. In 1945, the Soviet Navy was in shambles. It consisted of 3,000 mostly obsolete aircraft, no carriers, and a hodgepodge of ships loaned from the West, prizes of war from Germany, Italy, and Japan, and the remnants of its pre-war fleet. None of these ships were comparable to the newer ships of the United States or Britain. Ironically, this wasn't a major hindrance, though, as the rapid development in technology had also rendered many Western ships just as obsolete. Indeed, it gave the Soviets a level of playing field from which they could catch up. Nonetheless, the Soviet service fleet was no match for the Western service fleets 1945 to 1950. Not only were its ships old, in poor condition, and obsolete, some were relics of the early 20th century. Additionally, its officers and sailors had extremely limited open ocean sailing experience. Most of its men had spent the war fighting with the Red Army or serving close to the Soviet coast in the Baltic or Black Seas, whereas its Pacific fleet saw no action. In contrast, the American, British, and even the French Navy had ended the war with a high level of naval combat and amphibious operations experience. The British and Americans also held a significant lead in aircraft carrier experience, damage control operations, and maintaining fleets in distant locations. Above all, the Americans and British had experience in, in command control and communications needed to tie large naval operations together. In terms of ships, the Soviets had three battleships two of which were old pre-World War I coal-fired battleships, neither of which were capable of operations other than limited coastal defense due to their obsolescence. They could be sunk easily by aircraft given their lack of anti-aircraft guns. The third battleship was the former Italian battleship Julius Caesar. She weighed 29,032 tons and was armed with 10 12-inch main battery guns. The secondary battery was 12 4-inch guns. Commissioned in 1913, she was a fast ship capable of 27 knots. In contrast to Western battleships like the Vanguard, John Bart, or Missouri, she was obsolete, though, even for a battleship. She was thinly armed with only 11 inches of armor, which had been a hallmark of Italian design. Among most Italian sailors, these ships were, had been known as cardboard class. 
In Soviet service, she was renamed Novorusky. Her main guns were replaced and her armor was thickened. She was used extensively for training and trials and was the last operational Soviet battleship. Unfortunately, she was accidentally lost while at anchor while in the Black Sea after hitting an old German sea mine in 1955. Various plans were drawn up for new battleships in the late 1940s, but these were canceled in 1950. The Soviets, as mentioned earlier, had no aircraft carriers. During the final days of the war, though, they did capture the incomplete German aircraft carrier Graf Zeppelin. This 35,500-ton warship was 85% complete at the beginning of World War II and was large enough to carry 40 aircraft. The Germans never completed the construction of the ship, but did move the ship around a number of times. It was occasionally bombed, but survived the war. By the time the Soviets captured the vessel in April 1945, it had been scuttled. The Soviets a year later refloated the Hulk and loaded it with war booty, including several German submarines, and towed the ship to Leningrad. Surprisingly, unlike other captured ships, she wasn't refurbished, but instead used as a target Hulk. The cruiser force consisted of ex-German, Italian, and ex-American light cruisers, including some pre-war Soviet-built cruisers. All were considered obsolete when compared to most World War II-era Western cruisers. The Soviet destroyer force, like the rest of the Navy, was a mixed match of 13 types of both foreign-built and domestically-built ships. It is difficult to determine exactly how many Soviet destroyers there were, as the Soviets routinely changed their pennant numbers and ship names, as well as fabricating the number of lost or currently operational ships. But roughly speaking, the force consisted of four vintage 1918 American destroyers, several ex-German, Italian, and Japanese destroyers of varying capability, and at least eight Soviet-built ships. Many of these ships were not suitable for operational service, as their power plants had been worn out from years of service with little or no maintenance. Despite the humble origins of the Soviet Navy, though, they had learned many lessons from the war, both from their experience and from the experience of other navies, which deeply influenced its growing ability to produce quality warships. By 1946, the Soviet Navy began to design a post-war destroyer class that was comparable to those in the West, the first of which was the Sorky class, built in 1949, of which 70 were built. These 3,500-ton heavily armed fast ships at 38 knots brought international respect to the Soviet Navy. Even so, the Soviets remained outclassed and outnumbered in every category of ships and had no carriers or amphibious shipping 1945 to 1950. There was, however, one area in which they did pose a significant threat, attacking Allied shipping, airlines, and communications across the Atlantic with their submarines. The submarine force made up the bulk of the Soviet fleet and held the greatest potential in the initial early years of the Cold War. The influence of late-war German submarine design deeply impacted the types of Soviet boats built in the years following World War II. The Red Army brought back everything they could from Germany in relation to underwater warfare. This included hiring former German U-boat crews to serve as instructors to Soviet submarines. In 1945, the Soviets operated some 285 submarines, all of Soviet design and manufacture, of which 159 were ocean-going and 126 coastal submarines. These were, however, all pre-war design and lacked modern refinements such as streamlined hulls and snorkel tubes. Post-1946 Soviet subs were supplemented with captured German submarines. The primary goal of the Soviet submarine force was the defense of Soviet coastal areas from amphibious invasion. 
By 1950, the Kremlin had announced a program to build 1,200 submarines over a 15-year period. 100 smaller submarines would patrol the Soviet coastal area. 900 submarines would patrol areas such as the North Sea, Baltic, Black Sea, and the Sea of Japan. 200 long-range attack boats would patrol the North Atlantic and the Pacific. The mission of these long-range and medium-range boats was to sink enemy shipping before it had opportunity to reach Europe. The submarine force, like the rest of the fleet, was not standardized, and even by 1950, it consisted of 16 different types of boats. Many of its boats were ex-German and Italian war prizes. Many of the boats which had been captured were unfinished and were completed later in Soviet shipyards. Added to these were boats built in Russia before and during the war. The German boats were highly advanced and posed a real threat to NATO in its early years. By 1943, Germany realized its submarine force had to be modernized to deal with the anti-submarine warfare tactics and technology introduced by the Allies. The German answer to this was the Type 21 and Type 22 for coastal patrol. Hull designs were streamlined with welded hulls capable of double the underwater speed of most contemporary boats. They were air-conditioned and had silent auxiliary electric mortars for combating enemy listening devices. They were specifically designed to operate underwater for most of their patrol through the use of the air-breathing snorkel and high-capacity batteries. Versus older designs which had to surface regularly to recharge their batteries and recycle their air. At the beginning of World War II, 1939-1942, this wasn't a serious drawback for the Germans, but with increasing numbers of Allied planes, by 1943, every minute on the surface meant a minute in danger, as they could be spotted and attacked by Allied aircraft. In the years that followed the war, the Soviet Navy used these captured boats for operational work and began the design of what would be its most significant immediate post-war submarine, the 1,350-ton NATO codenamed Whiskey Class submarine, capable of 15 knots submerged, armed with six 21-inch torpedo tubes, more than 100 of these medium-range submarines were built. The Soviets, like the Americans, had their own Marines, known as the Naval Infantry, who had participated in heavy fighting during the Second World War, but were transferred to the coastal defense after the war and disbanded in the mid-1950s. The Soviet vassal states in Eastern Europe made only a small contribution to naval capabilities. Those with navies operated them at a relatively low level. Czechoslovakia, Hungary had, had no access to the sea. Bulgaria, East Germany, and the Polish navies were closely directed by Moscow, and their roles were subordinated to the Black Seas and the Baltic fleets, respectively. They were also supplied with Soviet ships, but they were obsolete. During World War II, a small number of Polish ships had escaped to Britain and continued to operate with the British Navy for the rest of the war. After the war, they returned to Poland and became the nucleus of the communist Polish fleet. The Polish Navy was very small, but the second largest socialist navy until the 1980s. Throughout most of the Cold War, they operated at least one destroyer, a small number of diesel-electric submarines, and a large number of amphibious warfare vessels, patrol craft, and minesweepers. The Polish also operated an indigenous shipyard at Gdansk. The only other vassal nation to maintain a seagoing navy was Romania, which had a tonnage limit of 15,000 tons imposed by the Soviets in the 1947 peace treaty, although Romania failed to approach this comparatively low ceiling for many years. I hope you enjoy our look at sea power in the early Cold War. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. 
I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you're already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the photos for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.